Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have Spencer Hillegas with me. Spencer and I connected via LinkedIn during like hard COVID. I think it was like really in the depths of quarantine. And we've stayed in touch since and we're going to get into this a little bit, but in a landscape that's really full of a lot of people that I'm not sure are truly professionals out there doing allocations or sponsored real estate deals, Spencer is one of the more thoughtful and professional folks that I've encountered through this world. So I'm excited to have him come on and talk a little bit. Spencer, could you maybe tee us up with a little bit of of, a background that could inform our conversation moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for the kind words, Brian. I wasn't expecting that. And you're kind of making me blush. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in case the the audience already knows this probably, but I have a a high deal of respect for you and your firm and the way that you guys conduct yourselves. So thank you. It's really the honor is mine. You know, so yeah, I'm based out here in the Bay Area, California. You know, I'm currently running Madison Investing. You know, we help folks primarily, you know, connect investors with, you know, multifamily storage and kind of some other private funds that we have invested with those sponsors ourselves, et cetera. But we didn't always do that. And I, I certainly was not originally from this type of background. I grew up in the Bay Area originally, but I did grow up as a side note in a real estate household. My dad was a broker for 30 years, residential real estate broker. I worked hard in his business as much as he was you know, wanting to make me doing open houses as a teenager, et cetera. That scared me into tech. And so, you know, it's not cool to tell your friends when you're growing up that you work in a real estate company. If you're in the Bay Area, tech is the cool thing. You know, so I ended up spending 13 years in predominantly financial tech or fintech, cool way to say that these days, fintech, <laughs> fintech companies. And, you know, the final one out of five, I, I spent my, my last few years in, and it really concluded 
just five months before COVID, fun side note, because I've been building Madison Investing on you know, nights, weekends, mornings for years leading up to this. But I left the W2 world officially five months before COVID because this was just simply a lot of fun to build. And we were getting great feedback from the investors and folks that we work with. So that's what I do all day, every day. I, I love what I do. My co-founder also happens to be as our COO and, and my wife, my better half, Jennifer Momoto. I like to throw that in there too, because I think folks often are curious about how you work together with your spouse, because some folks love it, some folks maybe not so much. It works very well for us, but that's kind of my quick story. You know, it is also worth mentioning that I still have a special place in my heart for, you know, playing some punk rock and metal on guitar and occasionally playing on bands when I can. So that's the part you don't quite pick up with the collar shirt and discussions of, you know, securities and financial transactions. <laughs> yeah, but that makes you an interesting person, right? And that's what I really enjoy. I mean, you were on Warp Tour, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to claim too big of fame. You know, we were a very small band, Bay Area based, but we did get a moment back in the 2000s where we got to play in San Francisco and Warp Tour and, you know, playing to hundreds of people was a lot of people for us at the time. And it's That's like a awesome. glimpse. It's a glimpse into a different slice of life. And, you know, it at least makes me feel like I've explored enough of those paths and forks of decision that we all face where you're like, what would have it been like to go down that path? And I'm like, you know, I love listening to other bands. I'm very, <laughs> very, I'm very pleased with the path that we have chosen. And I'm still happy to rock out with my audience of two young kids when I play Wheels on the Bus. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as somebody that used to, I don't think I've ever talked about this on the show or anything, but despite my appearance and my LinkedIn profile today, I was a big like skater punk fan back in the day. And so I used to go to Warp Tour every year, Palooza, the whole deal, all the festivals. But I agree with you. I think it's a tough way to make a living. It's a young man's game. That it is. And is it, just to comment on that briefly, Brian, I think there's a lot of you know folks, uh, the, the punk rock enthusiasts in hiding who are very much deep in the professional world now for years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, I, and this is, we're not going to go down this tangent, but Rob Drydeck has become like a real estate guy and become kind of a brand builder within the content creation space, which is just so fascinating to me, but that's what makes people compelling in my opinion. So, yeah, I mean, I just want to comment on that because it's eerie. You just brought that up. I mean, just in the last week I had a piece of his content forwarded to me and frankly, that wasn't on my radar yet until just this last week. And it's really interesting. You mentioned it now, cause I looked at his content and I was like, no kidding. Yeah. I mean, you know, all the way from skateboarding to then hosting some MTV show that was you know, it was out there. I don't know if it was my favorite, but hey, now he's putting out content that I was very impressed by. Yeah. You know, no, I think it's really pretty quality. And it goes to this conversation I was having with a friend yesterday. And I want to hear your, your opinion on it. But even if you are a financial services professional, or even if you are a tech entrepreneur or a skater punk band, it today we're all really just kind of media companies in one way or another. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic as to how the work and professional landscape has evolved, right? We all, like you and I talking right now, out of our respective offices, home office, you know, here, this is something that technology has enabled. And it's, I, I think it's an amazing and beautiful and empowering thing. And I really encourage folks to go out and realize the power of that, you know, whatever your endeavor is, you know, I mean, we happen to talk about investments and, you know, and, and financial services and nerd out on that in the best way. But there's content creators who are, you know, 15 years my younger, and they are putting out stuff that I read on LinkedIn and beyond. And it's like, oh my gosh, all they needed was a microphone, a computer, and they were able to start producing stuff that's adding material value to people in the world. And they have a business built around that now. That's incredible. 
what I've, I've heard Tim Ferriss and others talk about this, but it's just creating more lever points, right? Social media, your content creation, your capital, your relationships is another form of leverage. And that's been really enabled by these huge innovations within tech. And so I'm curious, your journey from whole circle from real estate to tech back to real estate, but I'm sure it's more of a hybrid now where you're utilizing tech and some of the skills that you obtained being in that space to help drive your real estate business forward, correct? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you're touching on, which I'm excited to talk about, I know we very briefly touched on this just before we started recording, Brian, but don't get a chance very often to talk about this topic, which I think certainly the active folks in your audience and perhaps the passive investors who are eventually looking to become more active, you may find this very interesting, which is, you know, you go out when you first have a business idea, you want to go out on your own, maybe you want to build your own business, a side hustle, what have you. And the entrepreneurship community, broadly speaking, is very encouraging. You know, it's very positive, reinforcing you at coaching programs, there's books galore, all these things. But one of the things that I have noticed is not touched on very commonly, and I think it's worth mentioning is that there's really not a lot of love given to the value derived from skills, knowledge, relationship, processes, frameworks, I go on, gained in a corporate, I say corporate, but W2 career of any type, you know, and for me, I had one big company experience. I was fortunate to start it into it early in my career, a company that makes most of folks know that by TurboTax, QuickBooks. Um, very thankful for that. But I went to progressively smaller companies by choice. And that was because I wanted to learn. It wasn't just because I was chasing equity for a big IPO out of a tech company, which frankly is not something I'm going to act like I'm above because we are looking forward to one of those, hopefully in the near future as well. But I will say it's worth it. It's worth going and considering at least getting those kind of sea legs professionally, because in the entrepreneurship game, in our business and now in general, something as simple, not to go too nerdy here, Brian, but you tell me if you want to go further down this, something taken for granted, like a marketing funnel, you know, how to put together a marketing funnel. And that term for most people is like, what does that even mean? We're not talking about the thing you cook and you pour flour into and make something in the kitchen. We're talking about Top of funnel, middle funnel, bottom of funnel. And I'm just using one very specific example, of course. And you know, beyond that, the ability to have four parallel concurrent Google calendars to organize a rather complex life and family scenario between parenting responsibilities, trying to serve our investors as best we can, all the rest. But it is also worth calling out that like went to Intuit, a few Intuit competitors over years, very lucky to have stumbled my way into a uh, company called Lending Home. I think they've rebranded since, but I think around the time I left, the biggest hard money lender in the country. So they funded fix and flip projects for single family homes. And I had the unique challenge of coming in and growing their loan origination team. And we did about 600 loans a month. <laughs> it was like $4 billion in, in originated loans over that time which sounds bonkers to people, but the reason that worked was because people far smarter than I was and am built this system, you know, this internal set of processes that could modern something as hairy as getting a loan. You know, <laughs> I think a lot of your audience has probably gone through that at least one time. It's not fun. And I take away the key takeaway here, Brian, if I had to say anything that sticks with folks on the benefits that I got from that career was the power of frameworking. I mean, it's a given on relationships. I mean, I don't want to leave that behind. That is the number one relationships and how to forge them, how to nurture them, how to get it, be authentic with them is key. But frameworks, frameworks, meaning you can framework just about anything. I mean, whether it's how right now we had to build a framework around how to have our seven-year-old learn how to read better because he's good at math, but needs to work on his reading. You know, for our business though, 
how do you vet a sponsor you want to invest in as an LP? You know, how, how do you decide if a project they've sent you is up to snuff to your criteria, whereas the last one might not have been, you know? And so, sorry for going long-winded on that. I just wanted to call that out because I look at it like that is the commonality, the common thread. If I had to pick one besides the relationships built, the network there, frameworking. Oh man, just from brilliant people, far smarter than I am, more academically accomplished than a punk rock kid. I would just say, I cherish those, those learnings from those folks. Yeah. To follow up on it, when we look to hire, you know, we're a very entrepreneurial, small firm and we need self-starters, right? You need to, all the cliches apply, like utility player, et cetera. But when I look at pedigree, I love hiring people from public accounting, big corporate law and investment banking because they have great training programs and they understand that what we're trying to talk about here are creating documented systems and processes that we can automate and replicate to be more efficient. And I think if you just jump right into being an entrepreneur, it's very hard to understand that unless you've seen how these big machines really work and you've been inside of them. So my question to you would be, given the staggering growth and wealth creation within the tech community, what is the value proposition for those type of executives to go to someone like you to vet real estate opportunities and, and to get exposure and access? Because I would think they already have a fairly robust deal network. Is this about a diversification or, or education? What does that conversation look like? Oh, this is a fun and timely topic, Brian. I appreciate you bringing it up. You know, I'm going to put a swag number because this I don't haven't run the official numbers on this, but I'd say at least 60, maybe as high as 70% of our current members of our investing group at Madison Investing, unsurprisingly, are folks from the tech world. You know, they're folks that come from big tech, whether it's Facebook, Google, Salesforce, I mean, even like the Oracle, SAP, all the rest. And we have this conversation quite often because it's just a very new space. I mean, whether it be, regardless of real estate asset type, the category that we all think about, and they certainly think about, because when I say they, I mean, we, this also reflects my experience at one point. We think about a rental, you know, we think about buying a single family home and that is the typical starting point. I mean, and you already know this, Brian, but I want to make sure we covered it for our audience, for the audience as well is like, that is the typical reference point people have is, oh, real estate investing. Well, I have a home, but I don't want to go manage a rental. That's the, that, that's kind of the, you know, the start, starting line. And so I think folks that are often looking at this category right now in 2021, Q4, the talk that I'm often having, particularly with the high net worth folks in our group is how do I diversify away from the equities markets? And I'm not implying any recommendations here about these. I'm just stating the nature of the conversations that come up most frequently, which is they ask, how can I, how can I mitigate the risks of being too heavy on really three things, which is just stocks overall, you know, index funds, single stock picking, but particularly like, you know, funds, crypto, believe it or not, that is a very, very common conversation that I have because so many folks in the tech community are very familiar with it. They're comfortable with it more comfortable than I am, frankly, but I would just say that they are very comfortable with it and it has treated them very well. So they want to diversify away from that a bit now more than ever. And I think I mean, beyond that company stock, you know, like, like, like you talk to folks from whether it be, and, and this is just in the last week, I mean, Apple, Facebook, you know, they say person X says, I have to diversify away. Well, I have like, I think it was like 90 something camera, they could have percent, like 90 something percent of their portfolio specifically within RSUs. And that's not because they haven't been investing. That's just because Apple's done that well. And so it's uh, a wonderful problem to have. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, you know, in, in terms of diversification, that definitely comes up. Most of these folks do not necessarily prioritize nor need cash flow, 
but they appreciate it. They look at it more so as like a de-risking mechanism because you're getting at least something back and lowering your invested capital over time. But yeah, sorry, that was probably more than you bargained for on that one. <laughs> no, that's great. And it gets into something that, that I want to talk about with you. To be frank, I don't often have real estate people on the show <laughs> because I think many times they could be cannibalistic and I like to kind of broaden the lens a little bit within this. And we haven't talked about this on the show, I don't think, but could you maybe help us parse out within this ecosystem that you and I work in the role that you play as an allocator versus the role that I play as a sponsor operator and how you tell that story to, to your investor group. And you alluded to the, the diligence, et cetera, that you provide. Maybe also touch on kind of the value that you give within these relationships, both the investor side and the, and the operator sponsor. Happy to. And, and please keep me at a reasonable altitude because this is where I tend to get probably a little too excited about the details. <laughs> so help keep me honest on that. So to what you just mentioned, Brian, you know, in front of the audience that may not know this yet, you have the role of most folks when they think about, you know, talk about funds, talk about syndications, right? Like private investment deals, private placements, if you haven't heard that term, more of the compliance lens, but pri- private placements is what we're talking about here. Syndications fall into that, private funds fall into that, other and, and other types as well. And so we primarily focus on syndications and funds, and you always have a person managing right? The manager of those syndications, typically referred to as the GP, the general partner, interchangeably used in such a confusing way with the terms, you know, sponsor, operator, asset manager, depending on who you're talking to, et cetera. That role is the, is the team and the person doing all the work. And so, you know, Brian and, and his team at Excelsior Capital, very much the GP, acquiring different types of assets out there. It could be multifamily, office, retail, et cetera. There's an ecosystem of roles that are critical surrounding that that general partner. And some firms, you know, they are fully integrated, as it were, you know, and you've got everything in, involved. You've got property management, you've got acquisitions, people who find the property, you've got the financial arm, and you've also got probably like some form of like equity capital investor relations arm. And some firms are all self-contained and fully integrated. Many out there that are scaling rapidly simply don't have that infrastructure and they also need more resources and frankly, even also expertise from the outside. And so that's where a role such as Madison Investing and myself come in. I have been in the GP on on previous deals multiple times over, but I will say I deliberately chose not to go further down that path a number of years ago because we decided this is the right business model where it plays very well to our strengths. And so what we do is we, well, frankly, First, this started as investors ourselves. We are limited partners ourselves. We've put our own money with sponsors and we've literally baked that into our process as a business too. And so we go out, we invest money with, in deals and, and with teams we like uh, that we vet. And we're looking at things such as, I won't go long form on this, but here's the vetting criteria that we typically use just in buckets for a good team, a good GP, right? Track record, a team, communications, you know, like legal. And then also as corny as it might sound, their values. We don't have to go down that one and most people want to, but you can actually test for that, in my opinion. And so we, we look for folks that align with us there. We put our money in with them. We let that cycle through a few rounds, meaning quarters, distribution, you know, handful of months, et cetera. And if that works out, we evaluate actively partnering with them because they, they might need at least investor relations support, equity capital, meaning bringing investors in that already work with us. They trust us. They trust our approach. And beyond that, though, Sometimes we help on other areas as well. You know, so some folks just don't have the operations process built out internally for how to do some of the stuff that from tech, you know, we consider kind of table stakes. And so that is the kind of stuff that a role such as ours brings to the table. 
probably the last comment, Brian, and, and if this is too far, just let me know, which is there's a lot of ways for someone in my seat generally to partner with someone such as yourself, Brian, like a GP, a few prevailing models. You know, you'll usually see a fund of funds, probably the most common version of that in the market right now. A person goes and creates a fund of their own. They bring investors into that fund. They then work with a, a GP or a sponsor to say, hey, let's bring all these investors over and work with you guys. And so that is not what we do. We actually are, I am registered with FINRA and the SEC. And so it's a world that I, I know previously you were very much more familiar with, Brian, but I think that means we just work directly with, with sponsors. You know, we don't have a, a fund of our own. And I will also occasionally join the GP teams with the teams, with the folks that we work with, depending on the deal. So we put our money where our mouth is as investors, but we also take the time to, to truly vet and get to know these folks. I mean, just this last three or four months, I was flying around the country going out to look at assets that we we're evaluating, but also, you know, looking in Idaho and Texas and Colorado and Arizona for properties we're looking to evaluate, but also ones we've already invested in just to check in on them. So anyways, hopefully not too long-winded. <laughs> no, it's helpful and it can be confusing. And I think oftentimes, especially if somebody's coming from a very technical background within financial or professional services, they can almost be embarrassed to ask some of these questions, mm. but it's important to spell it out, right? How you work with me and how you work with your investors and what the roles are, because to your point, and I applaud you for this, being an operator sponsor, making acquisitions and being an asset manager is a lot of work. You need the infrastructure, you need the human capital. It's not for everybody. It is a different business than educating and cultivating investor relationships. And not every operator should be doing that either, because if they're not passionate about it, they won't be very good at it. And so there's a place for everybody here. My question for you, what are red flag deal breakers? when you're diligencing a GP sponsor or, or a deal? Yeah. And, and so right out the gates, you know, we had made the decision that we didn't want to be the first, you know, I don't want to use this in a derogatory way, but we don't want to be the guinea pig on their first deal. So we do expect that they've had at least multiple acquisitions. And, you know, it would be an exception if we worked with someone who had no exits at all. And so exits, meaning they've bought a property or an asset, because we typically work in value add. We have started doing some more development stuff, but value add deals, you know, buying a business, but that business happens to be in the form of a functioning apartment building full of humans and families. <laughs> and so you're buying it, improving it, and then selling it later, right? And, and so if they haven't done that yet, we don't want to be the guinea pig for that. And so that would be the biggest deal breaker right off the bat. Another one I would say, and this kind of hits on track record, but from a different direction than I, I had typically seen it within real estate, which is why it's become so important to me and to us, which is, it's kind of a nerdy branding for it, but it's failure response, which is, has this team or in particularly the leadership team, like the one or two or three people at the helm, have they been through a very painful deal? You know, like, have they had a capital loss occur, like act of God that really caused damage? something so challenging, you know, that they really had to kind of climb their way out of it, you know, claw their way out of it. And I'd like to understand like, what just, what was that? You know, like, what was that? What did they learn from that? And if it's not in real estate, because they don't have that example yet, that's not the end of the world. That's not a hard deal breaker. It is a deal breaker if they say they've never had one period. Because <laughs> no one has a few decades on planet earth without having those moments. And if they say they're perfect, that is a very big red flag to me. I like those red flags. <laughs> I think it makes <laughs> a lot of sense. So those are some of, of the red flags. What are some things that get you really excited? Because in your seat, you get inbounded all the time from people like me, right? Like you must be on a million distribution lists and 
you're very active on LinkedIn. So I'm sure sponsors are just crushing you. I mean, how do you, to go back to your tech background, what does your funnel look like? And how do you end up pressing green light go with a particular opportunity? Yeah, I appreciate you letting us go into that a bit. I assume we're talking specifically about the, the kind of partner sponsor side, not so much the investor side. And so it's a lot easier to say no. Right, let me say it this way. It's a lot easier to say not yet than it is to say no. And that is typically the answer. You know, I, I think we are very blessed now. You know, when we first built this business, as with any other entrepreneur, we were going out there to establish sponsors saying like, please take us seriously. <laughs> Just, you know, I promise we will work tirelessly to show up well for you and be a good partner. But now we're very blessed that we have folks who reach out to us. The first filter I would say is not just the track record. It's also, did that name come from uh, introduction? That is the Uber filter in any industry period. And so I know it's old school to folks, but that's just the way the world works. And so I think we had our, our last partnership that we decided to take on before we even invested in them as LPs, which is the first step in our vetting process as active partners. We go through our own vetting before we even make a personal investment, of course, but it came from two separate you know, referrals, like one of which was our own investor, repeat investor LP of ours on multiple other deals. And then an active player in the industry who I have a deep respect for, had worked on other deals with. Those are two totally separate points of reference and they, they had not talked to each other. And both of which did, you know, almost simultaneous introduction. It was very strange in a good way. And that is a great positive indicator for how to, how to get into it first and foremost. The filter beyond that, though, honestly, is like, I'm going to reference a book that I put at the top three list for me of all time, which is Essentialism by Greg McKeown. I bring it up here because that is the first book I've read where it literally gives you different ways to say no to people in tactful, professional, and even friendly ways. And I, I would encourage folks out there, if they're struggling with that, to, to just give that a quick read, because that, that's how I strive to do it. You know, like, like we really, truly aim to only add folks on our active partnership front once we have gone through all that and invested our own money first. <laughs> and it's been interesting because in the past couple of years, just to mention this, Brian, like oftentimes the reaction from some prospective partners of ours on the sponsor side, like don't believe that at first. And you know, that they've I'm taking that because they've said that, but also I can just kind of hear it in, in the, their reactions. But it's slow, you know, it's just slow. And and that means that it's it's deliberately slow. And so that occasionally a wonderful deal will come across the desk from a brand new partner. We've never invested our own money in, haven't vetted. I haven't met them at their offices. I haven't looked at any of their assets. And I sit there and I'm just like, oh, am I making a mistake with this vetting process being this slow, you know? And then I come back to earth and I say, it's a wonderful process. It just takes longer. And it's the obligation and commitment that we've made to our investors too, that we've actually gone through all this stuff first, you know? And so yeah, I could probably keep going into a nerdy spreadsheet level as to sub bullets and questions and buckets as to how we, we think about that. But that, that's truly it. And on top of the fact that I have to mention, aside from the who, you've of course always got the where in the market, but that's a kind of almost like a red herring sometimes, in my opinion. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if that's the right metaphor for that, um, but it's a distraction aside from the sponsor themselves. Like the sponsor is by far the most important thing to vet. And that's why we lean so hard on that before we get to the market, before we get to the deal. And so we will follow a good sponsor to a, to a market, you know, if they've done some other business there, repeatable business process, repeatable business process it is, uh, you know, by far and away the most important thing. It's just a helpful kind of catch all for what we look for. You know, we're doing a handful of deals right now with folks that are doing some C-class stuff. We've also worked with B-class and A-class, but C-class stuff, you better have a repeatable business process or you're going to hurt yourself right now in this economy. And so you better believe they've done it a lot. And that's why I feel good with it. I've seen it in person play out, you know, 
before, during, after renovations, property management, change out, you know, leasing up disposition. And so that that's the stuff that matters. Yeah. When I'd like to kind of call out a few things that you, you said there. One is this concept of introductions when people, and this is, I think Naval Ravikant talks about this, that if people ask you what you do all day, and you're not able to tell them, you say, oh, every day is different. That means you have a specific skill set, mm-hmm. right? And when people ask me what I do, I say most of my day is spent making introductions and making referrals, talking to people, because that's the business we are in, right? That the way that you connect with somebody dictates the rest of the relationship. And it's that trusted source and that confidence that it brings along with it. That is how this whole ecosystem works, especially now with doing so much virtually and remote. I think it's even more important because it's such a crowded, noisy marketplace many times. And I want to ask you something along those lines. Social media is incredible. Talked about leverage and a tool and and tech, but it can also have downsides. And you've taken pretty extended long breaks off of LinkedIn in the past. What caused that? And what did you learn when you did step away? Oh, this is like a way under-discussed and explored topic. I'm excited to talk about it. And, and in case this isn't clear for the audience either, you know, I'm a pretty vulnerable and open, authentic. I strive to be. I strive to be vulnerable, authentic, and all those wonderful things that oftentimes I can live up to. But sometimes, you know, I try to show up as best I can. And I think here, man, is social media ripe for this conversation. We happen to lean into LinkedIn. As, I mean, you mentioned up front, Brian, that's where you and I initially kind of, I've been admiring your posts and appreciating them for, for years at this point. But there was a very deliberate decision on our part to not do Facebook. And, and, and this is not a comment on the quality of these networks. This is about a business decision. And here's a tech concept, at least that I, I was familiar with it from tech of LinkedIn was our social media platform of choice because it aligned to the ideal investor profile that we were targeting. And that is why it's a very simple answer for a not so simple concept. We didn't lean into Facebook, didn't lean into Instagram, didn't lean into, you know, I'm not allowed to lean into TikTok because Finner doesn't like that, but you know, I'm not sure if I would have anyways. But that's why LinkedIn and the breaks taken, you know, there's something to be said for, gosh, I don't know who ultimately gets credit for this quote. There's like two comments on this. First quote would be uh, success whispers. (laughs) It's probably a piece of the quote, but I bring that up because, you know, there's times where like we have to be super organized now because I'm registered with FINRA. I write those posts, but you better believe I don't write them on the fly in the morning. We have to plan this stuff out now, you know? And I think that kind of stuff really matters. It's really me, really writing them, but we have to plan out ahead of time. And so I do take breaks. I do think relationships and real deals are being done, you know, away from all the social media. And the social media ultimately is there as a way just to make oneself more approachable, easier, easier to connect with people on a meaningful level, and also just maintain relationships if they tend to fizzle out a little bit, right? We're not going for high volume here. And I, I can only speak for our individual business. It's so, you know, played out, but I'd say quality versus quantity is part of our business. Like we don't have a massive funnel. We're not, we don't advertise at this stage. I can say that with a straight face because we just simply don't. Maybe someday we will, you know, but right now it's relationship driven. LinkedIn is a means of sure generating interest, but it's not our number one lead driver, Brian. Like it's like, it's really not. It's a way of connecting with folks, both on the investor front, but also frankly, I learned stuff from that platform every day. I wrote 900 posts over the course of about two and a half years personally. I don't think there's any necessary fans out there, but I'll just say, I don't plan on sustaining that. It's, it, it's just something that, you know, business is going quite well. So <laughs> I have to take breaks from time to time. The other comment I would say here is, 
talk about vulnerability. I mean, I've taken breaks just because I need a break. It is social media is not something our brains as humans are designed to use. I am not a doctor nor a scientist, but I believe I'm qualified. And hopefully most people agree with that. None of us have quite figured out what the right amount of social media exposure is, except for zero. So if we're doing it, we're doing it for a reason, but I don't want to live on social media. I want to figure out how to connect meaningfully and enrich relationships and enrich education for folks out there. Even if a post opens someone's eyes as to why they shouldn't have all of their portfolio exclusively in RSUs in one tech company, that kind of stuff. So along those lines, what, maybe give me a top two or three, but what have you learned since you started this business? And what have you found that really works and what just does not work for you? Oof. Number one learning. This won't be as direct. This, the hard part of the best learnings is they tend not to be tactics that someone can quickly borrow and implement, right? They tend to, and in my opinion, the best learnings are a little bit more heady and they have to be reflected upon before someone can truly implement them in their business. So all that preamble provided, what I have learned is you have to be true to yourself. And I'm not the guy who's going to get on there and do daily, multiple times a day posts. I'm going to write them myself. No judgments on those that have someone that outsources at all. That's a, that's a strategy, but it, it does, uh, it's worth mentioning, you know, like it's worth mentioning that I, we test, we learn. And if something doesn't work, move away from it, you know, just move away from it because, you know, the folks that we work with now, it's evolved quite a bit, right? I mean, we, we work with folks. Yes, many of our members are folks in big tech, you know, great W-2 income. They're thriving. They've been doing it for 10 plus years, right? But we have a very large number now of folks that are completely unrelated to tech across the United States. We have quite a few high net worth folks. They don't use LinkedIn. <laughs> they don't use social media oftentimes very much, if at all, you know, and, and it really does come down to offline relationship building authentically. Like you, you can't, we all have 24 hours in a day and whether you are a president, whether you are, you know, a celebrity and people at the highest level of success by most standards. But if we spend most of our time at topical interaction, and if I spend most of my time at topical interaction, I'm not spending that time deepening relationships that matter a lot. And our investor relationships matter greatly to me. Opportunities to connect with folks such as yourself, Brian, where it's just an enriching relationship. And I learn every time we talk. If you're posting all day, if you're commenting all day, you don't see a ton of, of, you see some, but you don't often see deep interactions there. So I would say diminishing returns over time would, would be something depending on how you do it. Yeah. It's kind of like how I'm not going to call anybody out here, but <laughs> when you see somebody that you work with financially or professionally, and they're really, really, really good at golf, and they're winning all these golf tournaments, you, you kind of have to wonder where are they finding the time? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't come from nowhere. So I'm going to no comment. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. And yeah, we won't get into that. Maybe next conversation. You mentioned this, you referenced this in your last statement about saying no. And one of the topics that you talk about are declining executive roles to build a financial moat. What does that mean? That means very specifically, it was just something I wrestled with, particularly in the last four years of my W2 career. You know, some folks will relate to this. I was largely in managerial and, you know, leadership seats over my, my career, teams that I owed my attention and my service to. Well, I also try to build and lead them. But the hard part is if you do well, you are often, and this is going to sound contrarian, and it's not just a punk rock comment. It is truly how I believe, how I see the world now from a professional perspective. In my last four years, I had to decline three different VP or, you know, or higher roles, a couple, you know, C-level job offers and stuff. And 
I just, I evaluated it quite differently than I did in my twenties. I'm a wise old 38 year old now, right? And I was saying that in a very facetious way, obviously in tech, that means I am old, by the way, by most standards, that might break a few hearts or offend some people. That's not my intent. That's just a reality. You go interview for a job, you'll find that out real quick. But in terms of saying no to promotions, that was hard. You know, you're basically sitting there saying, how do you go and carve out time to build a business on nights and weekends, to look at deals, to partner and discuss new strategies with people you could end up working with over the course of a five to seven to 10 year hold of a project. You can't do that if you're 80 to 100 hours, literally working for a company and you have to make some tough choices. You know, so I, I, I had to decline at least three different leadership jobs like that in service. I mean, turning away a, a raise each time and all that stuff because going to dinners, going to, you know, you got occasional company events. Those are the things that typically come along with more seniority. And so I wasn't sure if that was kind of where you're going on the question there, Brian, but I just wanted to speak to it a bit because I think the financial moat is typically built outside. <laughs> so contrarian sounding, but it is built outside your day job. Your financial moat for your family's stability is, at least for us, it has been built largely outside of, of the day job at this point in our lives. And, and, and that is because we followed historically a very traditional path. Jennifer had her own career, not in tech, more in marketing, marketing leadership, me on operations and sales, team building, leadership stuff, 401ks galore. You know, we were just, we were very thankful to be dumping money into those things for over a decade. And how much did that move the needle on our personal net worth? I'll just say a lot less than things that have been done since outside of those day jobs. And of course, we were very fortunate and very blessed to work with people and circumstances and all those things that come in from what some might call luck, sure, but also a hell of a lot of hard work done outside those day jobs and consistently over a course of years and waking up at 4 a.m. to work two hours, five days a week before my kids woke up and I had to go to work at my day job. You know, it's, it's stuff like that where not to get too soapboxy and preachy at folks, that's not the intent. It's just to let them know that like, hey, income streams coming into your family in whatever form. And I'm not even talking real estate. You know, it's just, I think oftentimes social media coming back to that, Brian, can lead folks astray thinking, you know, passive income is like, <laughs> is this magical thing that just starts coming in, but it does cost a lot of money to develop them from real estate. You can de-risk your income streams. I look at our families, the volatility in the risk profile of a family's ability to pay for their lives and their, you know, their safety and you know, housing and all those and, you know, school needs and all those things that comes down to what else are you surrounding your family with financial moat wise to be able to, to tolerate un unforeseen events. Right. And let's just kind of start moving towards the end of the conversation. When you talk about creating that financial moat, we have a lot of people on here who come from family office world. And I just think fundamentally the way that multi-generational families think about asset allocation investing is different. And the moat that Wall Street and private equity have traditionally had around their offerings for the last 20, 30 years, just these huge barriers to entry, right? You had to be a qualified purchaser. You had to go into a fund. You had to know the right relationship person at Goldman or wherever, but that's being disintermediated to use an overused term. Are you seeing that play out as well within your investor base? I don't know if this is right, but something like 13.3 million accredited investor households in America, something like 3% have exposure to alternatives today. I mean, you're talking to LPs and, and prospective investors all the time. Are you feeling that change happening? Oh, this is a fun final topic. I, you know, I'll do my best to keep it concise in the time we have, Brian. You know, The first point I'll reference here is one that might come from more of a macro lens than expected, but it's worth mentioning. You know, I saw some data, I wish I could remember the exact number, but the growth 
506C exemption deals in the past decade, roughly. And if you're the one that posted this, I don't know if you, if you posted this on LinkedIn last year or not, it was a good data point. So I almost immediately go to, oh, maybe Brian Adams posted it. It's growing rapidly. And 506C for the audience just means private placements. And it's a very specific exemption in which that these types of deals are, are offered. And it's growing rapidly. And it's growing rapidly. And I'm seeing that in these conversations. Back to your question, Brian. I'm seeing a, a broader awareness of the fact that there's just other ways to do things besides very traditional vehicles, you know, index funds, stocks, you know, bonds, and, and what people are typically going to see when they go into a target date fund slider and they want to pick their allocations, right? So yes. And why? Gosh, there's so many reasons. I could probably list off some. One, one of the ones I think is, is very key is democratization of education and information. Not, not to be too wordy there, you know, take a look at crowdfunding websites, right? I actually am a big fan because even though I don't necessarily use them myself right now, they bring education to the public in a very significant way. And 100%. I think, I think they get a bad rap. I think, I'm sorry to interject, but this is, no, please. this is important. Do I think the ultimate answer? No. I mean, there's a lot of friction costs and they think of themselves as like B2C SaaS companies and they're venture backed, which you mm-hmm. know better than I do, but, but anything that gets more market participants is a good thing. hundred percent. You took the words out of my mouth, you know, and I get the question weekly from at least one person. So how are you guys different than insert top five, you know, CrowdStream, uh, said the names, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not paid to say their names, but the folks just for the folks that are, you know, CrowdStream, Fundrise, Cadre, you can go down the list. These are all places that put out, you know, a full-blown marketing suite of content marketing. That content marketing, I've read a bunch of it. It's good stuff oftentimes. Like we're talking stuff that is palatable for the retail investor, both on the smaller side, as well as like the borderline, if not full-blown family office level. And I find that to be incredible. And just because I don't necessarily want to go and say, hey, go, go, you know, invest your funds over in these platforms. I will say that that's great. I mean, there are folks that, that are truly getting into private investments and alternative investments because they read a blog put out by one of these top five. And I think that's really cool, man. I totally agree. I think from they're so well-funded, they have full-blown marketing departments. They have really good content. And if somebody can get comfortable investing $25,000 over email, and then they can kind of build from there, I think it's great. I think it's good for everybody. And there's plenty of opportunity for everybody to participate. So I agree with you. We're going to have to do a part two. We're bumping up against an hour here. So it's kind of gone fast. But I want to thank you before we, we close it out. You said there are three books that you recommend typically, or two or three. You mentioned Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Greg McEwen, yeah. What are the others? Oof. I mean, these are going to sound pretty out of the business realm. Yeah, uh, good, good. Perhaps. I mean... This one's on a bunch of different lists. I, I've been a runner for many years. So what I think about when I think about running, I always am a big fan of that one. That I've probably re- re- reread that, but also listened to it a few times. It's just a great book. To, you know, If you want to get philosophy on how to persist, I think that that book is great. What I think about when I think about running. You know, the third one would actually still be a real estate book specifically. And you know, it's, it's, it's not an unfamiliar name to anyone in the space. I don't love the title, but I love the content, which is The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. The reason for that is similar theme to our discussion on the impact of crowdfunding and, you know, those crowdfunding platforms and their education. 
it just breaks it down in a way with visuals and simple concepts. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to go and pick up, you know, the next book on how to become a multifamily sponsor specifically either. I just think the notion of passive income, active income streams, what state, I mean, oh gosh, I love this one visual of have an awareness of what of the, which four stages of the four stages of wealth building in life, where are you at? <laughs> and I think that that is right now more than ever, particularly when talking to folks who, who are evaluating something like a $50,000 minimum investment and they just graduated from college, go back and read that book. You're at the wrong stage. You're evaluating the wrong investment vehicle. Go build the wealth before you go and figure out how to grow the wealth, right? And not, not to be preaching and soapboxy. I, I think that that book has got so much wonderful, so many wonderful nuggets in it. Awesome. Spencer, if, if people want to connect with you, learn more about the platform and, and the really good content you're creating, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. And th- thanks again, Brian. This has been a blast. We've covered so many topics that I, I wasn't even sure if we were going to. Um, yeah, we got we went from punk rock to tech to real estate to running. It's, it's good. It means that it was a full-blown, in-depth conversation. That's the uh, positive. Absolutely. I love it. And so, um, yeah, Madison Investing.com. That's our website. Folks can just reach out there. They can set up a time with me if they'd like. And of course, LinkedIn, where you and I first connected, Brian. And since then, I, I'm, I'm very much active on there still, despite dialing it back and occasionally taking breaks. I will. I might be a little slow on the reply sometimes because it's a DM, but I'm absolutely on there regularly. So reach out. Awesome. Spencer, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And we'll have to do a part two. Yeah, I think that that's definitely needed. So thank you, Brian. This has been a pleasure and an honor. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.